seemed like, like from what I saw of your episodes that you were kind of up my alley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's uh, not a lot not a lot of content just yet, but I'm growing. Up. I'm getting there and just trying to learn to be a better listener and just uh, try to let my, my guests talk. I tend to talk a lot, which I mean, it's the point of a podcast. It's like I said, it's not interview based, but I try to give the, the guest a lot of time to talk and just like an open platform to just go on whatever the idea they want to expound on. So that's kind of the way I want to push this. But um, to introduce yourself, what would you categorize your work as? Would it be like holistic hearing, uh, healing, mental coach, dating coach? What would you kind of um, like not to put yourself in one pigeonhole, but what would be the best way to summarize what you do? The moniker I feel most authentic in is resilience coach. Mm. I am a meditation coach, certified meditation coach. I also am certified in pranayama and yoga and mantra meditation, mm -hmm. forward-facing trauma therapy, neuro-linguistic programming. Mm. But my life experience has been one where I have had to bootstrap myself, pull myself up by my own bootstraps and yeah. go within to find the resilience that lives there. And so I consider all of the seemingly tragic or potentially, you know, um, depressing or anxiety inducing things that have happened to me in my life to be great gifts. Mm. And I, believe that the only way that we grow is when we are challenged mm. that, 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 that's uh that's very beautifully said I, I love the way that you mentioned the resilience that lives there i mean noting that we all have resilience inside that we have to unlock and and we have to capture it and you know embrace it so that's very beautifully said on your part that the resilience lives there within us i mean maybe you've heard it reminds me of the old tale of the two wolves i have it continue uh -huh. so there's the one wolf who's very um negative and pleasure seeking and um, resentful and competitive and then the other wolf which is compassionate and more accepting and i'm not even sure the dichotomy but it, the characteristic differences is, is negative and positive mm -hmm. and the question at the end is well which wolf wins and it's the one that you feed mm -hmm. right so oh okay okay thing, <laughs> yeah, i mean like we have something in our brain called the reticular activating system ras and I mean, basically we have access to billions of bits of data all around us. And the human brain is, is pretty phenomenal. It, it's picking up around 11 million bits per second, but we're only conscious of like 40 to 50 of the 11 million bits per second. And so that reticular activating system is helping us to hone in on whatever it is that we're looking for. So Homo sapiens as a species has survived for millennia by saying, okay, I need to find food. Well, then our, our brains start scanning for food. And so whatever we look for 
is what we're going to be able to focus on. And so we leverage the reticular activating system to find the things that are actually inherently good in a particular mm-hmm. situation that might be challenging. Yeah, like the most basic way I could think about it is um, it's like we have these uh, monic- like these things that we see in life, whether it be figures of speech or actual ideas, like surround yourself with the company. You know, the company you keep tells me more about you than you can possibly tell me about yourself. So it's kind of like the same way. It's like the energy that you attract is kind of what you put out in the world. But that, once again, that that's that's very well said that we have two wolves and which wolf is wolf, which, which wolf are you going to feed? You know, it's like the contrast of one another. I mean, it's easy to say be positive or be negative, but the, the actual idea of wolves inside you, I think that's pretty powerful. I like that. I, I've never heard of that. But that, that that's cool. That's uh, that's right on my alley because I mean, I think when we see a lot of things like the things you the things you mentioned, I think the average person can get kind of overwhelmed by these um terms and terminology and just be like, okay, like what does this what does all of this mean? But when you break it down into examples like that, um, like you said in your bio, you have bite size, you know, tips, you know, bite size tricks to like, you know, put yourself and make yourself more productive. So that's something that if you wouldn't mind speaking on like bite size, like is that something that you learn through your journey as a professional where it's easier to make digestible content for people to comprehend so that they don't get overwhelmed with their healing journey? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. We live in this bite-sized, literally, we live by sound bites and memes and essentially poetry. If you think about it, it's short form conveying Mm -hmm. potent messages. But I think, you know, in the modern world, it doesn't matter how old you are. We're looking at a video and we're like, click it. How long is this longer than three minutes? Like, I don't have time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So these pocket sized techniques, bite sized, I always say they're pocket sized techniques and you don't need a pocket. They're simple things that you can memorize that become cellular that through repetition you lean on instead of going to the default. And to me, the default of our 3D world is the 3Ds, deny, distract, dissociate. Mm. We're not actually engaging and paying attention and processing the emotions. Mm -hmm. Instead, we're looking at all the different avenues that we have to deny how we feel, distract ourselves from the pain and dissociate what is actually causing the pain. Mm -hmm. Because when we go through difficult situations in life, it can be actually physically painful, even though it's an emotional epoch, an emotional era, an emotional event, Mm -hmm. it can feel actually physically painful in the body. I don't know. Do you, do you resonate with that? Do you feel like during high emotional, emotionally charged eras of your life, there can be physical pain associated with it? Yeah, for me, for me, it's like my energy. For me, it's like my energy becomes drained. Like when when my spirit isn't feeling it or my spirit isn't calibrated or if I'm going through something, my energy is just, I feel it just withdrawn. I mean, there's there's some people that are, that distract themselves with productivity and use Mm -hmm. that and use anger or all these things. Like, for example, a lot of the content that you have um, is about getting like over your ex-partner or something. And I know a lot of people that use that that pain as like an as like a boost like i'm gonna show them i'm gonna become this great 
I'm going to get fit. I'm going to make them want to wish they had me back. But I don't think that's healthy. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see that being healthy, like going on a fitness journey with the idea of making your ex like wish they had you back or going on a, a wealth journey so that when they see you, you're in some kind of luxury sports car so that they're envious of like your new boyfriend or new girlfriend. Like I, I see that a lot with um, people, Um, I, I guess, I guess. With, with guys i mean obviously it's something that we see a lot of you know this, this materialistic this alpha male quote-unquote you know mentality that we see with social media and a lot of it is like oh your ex left you great now you have um gym motivation now, now you have this motivation to get back at them so that when they see you they see you i don't know with uh, a great body getting out of a sports car so with mm-hmm. me personally it's opposite if I'm not, if my soul isn't in the right, isn't calibrated, I become very, my energy becomes very low. I'm not, I don't have that resentment that a lot of people have, I guess. And I just don't see that being healthy in the long run where you're changing yourself with the intention of making the person wish they'd never left you. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that being the focus of your, your journey, I don't think that's healthy for anyone. I agree with you. I feel like you're picking up on this idea that it, there's some sort of, this is a heavy word, but malicious intent, like, mm-hmm. like wanting to control the way that the other person feels. It's wanting them to be regretful or, mm-hmm. you know, sorry that they broke up with you, right? Mm-hmm. That's the idea is to, And so with my clientele, I repeat all the time and it's obvious, but it's not always focused upon that there are exactly two things you can control, your thoughts and your actions. Can't control how somebody else perceives you, can't control what they think about you, what they say about you, what they do to you they say to you, you can't control any of that. You can control mm-hmm. your thoughts and your actions. Like not you, but we, we can control our thoughts mm-hmm. and our actions and, and that's it. And so much of a common thing that women suffer, suffer from people pleasing. Mm, exactly. yes. It, yes. I saw that. I saw that. On yeah. I, I it, wanted to get into that, but continue. Yeah. It's actually selfish when we, people please we are trying to manipulate the situation that word manipulation but Mm -hmm. it's true we're we're trying to control the way that this other person sees us because we don't want them to think we're lazy or unkind or whatever it is we're trying to control their perception of us and denying what we actually want or need in favor of what we think this other person wants us to do what we think this other person wants us to yeah. say, how we think this other person wants. It's, it's such a leap. We have mm-hmm. no idea what they really want. And we're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole mm-hmm. instead of being authentic. Yeah. And it <laughs> just starts an entire snowball of mm-hmm. danger. Yeah, because you don't know who you are. In the long run, you end up. They don't either. It's yeah, it's yeah. deception. Yeah, and and when you if you do end up together, that's when it's like 
the intention wasn't clarified, the parameters weren't set. So now it's like, wait, um, very basic example is like if you pretend to be a, a fitness fanatic for a person and then once you get together, you know, you, you they realize, OK, this person isn't really a fitness fanatic like I am. And now they're, they don't want to go run anymore because now they already have me. We're already together for a long time. Now they don't feel like they have to put on the fake persona, if you will, anymore. They don't have to go and do these fitness things or rock climbing or, or hiking, whatever, because that was just that was just a farce. That was just something that they were trying to say to people, please, to like get me to like them because I was their current conquest. You know, so that's something that you end up losing yourself in in the long run. Mm. Very well said. Agreed. Yeah, but but going back to people pleasing, it, it's something that it's very hard to say no. Like like when someone asks you for something, it's very hard to say no. Like your people would rather say yes and do it. And just like um, complain about it to themselves or to their close friends later about doing it. But in the moment, they'll do it. Right. Like I, w- I always kind of had like I was like in high school, I always had this miscue because like um, I had a partner in high school and she hated doing favors for a certain friend. And a couple of times that the friend asked her in front of me, I would, you know, try to get involved. I would try to mansplain if you will try to force myself in a situation i'm gonna take over and i'll be like no she can't do that because you know it's not it doesn't it's not beneficial it's it's out of her way it doesn't make sense for her to to go way over here and then come way over here and my partner at the time actually got frustrated with me because it's like no like why'd you do that like you know i'm, I'm still gonna do it. but i was like i was child i really couldn't comprehend it because like i know that later on you're gonna complain about it and i know you complain about it so i wanted to get in front of it and make you not do this or prevent you from doing this and it's okay if i look like a jerk because i'm the one that's getting in the middle and she's like no but i didn't want that that's not what i needed Mm. you know let me do it and just hear me out to complain about it later you know that's that's the way she kind of addressed it with me and it it became like uh, an argument i guess have you done any reading on the drama triangle no so they say in, and I'm no expert on the drama triangle. I point my clients toward it, but I don't necessarily explicitly teach it in my program. But mm-hmm. we have these roles that we switch between. And sometimes within the same conversation, you'll switch. So we have a victim, a persecutor, and a... Oh God, here, this is how much I haven't looked at it lately. A judge. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we switch between these. Oh, a rescuer, a rescuer, mm-hmm. a persecutor, and a victim. And so, okay. um, it sounds like you were trying to rescue her from that situation. Yeah. But in doing <laughs> so, you actually became a persecutor because then she's like defending herself and saying, "Don't do that," right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. we we're trying to. It's like you felt like she was being a victim from this other friend mm-hmm. who it seems like she's being a persecutor by like asking her to do those things when yeah. your girlfriend, your partner was mm-hmm. like, I don't need you to, to defend me. I don't need you to come. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's not just in male female relationships. It's in mm-hmm. mother daughter relationships and mm-hmm. sibling relationships too, mm-hmm. that we try to help one another out or we end up attacking because we're defending ourselves from some mm-hmm. 
seeming threat that we see. Yeah, some inconvenience. Yep. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the the human brain is in this hypno, hypnotic state for the first seven mm-hmm. years of our lives. I'm sure you know that. Like, mm-hmm. we are very impressionable for the first seven years. Yeah, that's why they say that's when you can learn a language the quickest, right? That's when you le- pick up languages the quickest because you're just soaking it all in those seven years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before the development of the prefrontal cortex here that allows that rational brain, the brain's CEO, that continues to develop through adulthood. Mm-hmm. But initially, right, we're just soaking everything in and all we have is the energetic vibration of it. We don't have any rational way of explaining yeah. it. Then when we get older, mm-hmm. we're trying to explain it rationally when really... It's a vibration that the body carries. Yep. Yep. So this is why embodiment techniques like yoga and breath work and getting into, like we say in yoga, the issues are in the tissues. So you got to get in and find where this raw sensation exists. Mm-hmm. Be with it. Be with the sensation. See if any memories bubble up and allow them to just pass through. Mm-hmm. Just instead of bottling it up or trying to explain it just be with the raw sensation mm-hmm. and allow it to be released from the body mm, okay i can dig that yeah. so so talking about yoga and, and breathing techniques um i don't know if there's a template for yoga or, or for yogis across the board but um what's your approach to it is it more um biological spiritual is it a blend of both when it comes to practicing yoga and breathing techniques is it it like do you have like with your clients is is it an approach of like biologically speaking if you talk if you stop and breathe a certain way your your body's gonna or is it also spiritual or is it a combination of the two i would imagine i mean i really like to exist in that space between science and spirituality the ancients thousands of years ago laid out these various traditions, number of different cultures have a lot of different practices that are made meditative, like yep. yoga asana. I mean, the very first yoga was really meditation using yep. uh, our voice and our breath. And now modern science has proven so much of what the ancients were doing. So I am a serious purveyor of knowledge and I'm constantly educating myself on especially the breath and how the way that we breathe affects our state of mind. Yep. Mm-hmm. We can survive for weeks without food. Our bodies can survive for weeks without food. We can survive for a few days without water, but only a few minutes without our breath. Mm. And the ancient yogis called breath prana, prana, Mm -hmm. life force energy. And if you think about it, when you take your first breath, that's your birthday. That's when we say, you know, your life here on earth has begun. And when we stop breathing, we are no more. And it's amazing how much that, so pranayama, this word pranayama, yama is to like control or modulate. Mm -hmm. So this is breath control. And so what they've discovered, they being the scientists, modern science has discovered Mm -hmm. that when we inhale, that activates our sympathetic nervous system. And Mm -hmm. it's the exhalation 
that activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system, I'm sure you know, is that fight or flight, mm -hmm. that defense mechanism. And the parasympathetic nervous system lets us know that it's okay to rest and digest. And so mm -hmm. if we intentionally lengthen that exhale, that is going to stimulate the activation of the parasympathetic nervous system and allow us to slow down because we live in this fast-paced, bite-sized society that doesn't want us to slow down. So I have some yoga teacher friends who say, I just teach Shavasana, that last pose. I just teach the the pose yeah. at the end. Like they're, they're all trying to get to that place where, mm. and really the whole class is dedicated to that so that we are more in that parasympathetic state. Because how many places do you find on planet earth where you can walk into a room like a yoga studio and lay down on the ground? Very few, right? <laughs> where we can actually consciously try to get into this parasympathetic state. Mm -hmm. We've got plenty of sympathetic activity all around us, traffic and our boss and deadlines and relationships and lines yep. that, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that are bombarding us at any yeah. moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so do you recommend uh, yoga breathing techniques? Is it more of a, a daily activity, like daily calibrate your your calibrate yourself with daily yoga or breathing activity? Yeah, personally, I use breath and mantra every day. I can't say that I get into asana. That's like the physical practice, like what you would think of as a yoga okay. studio activity that okay. is more popular in the West. I don't do yoga necessarily every day, but I do leverage the yogic techniques of breath work and mantra meditation because modern science has proven how beneficial they are. It lowers cortisol, adrenaline in the body. It boosts immunity. It allows us to promote clarity and coming full circle around to your idea of productivity. We can actually harness these different meditative techniques in order to increase productivity and increase clarity just by leveraging what we know about modulating the breath or pranayama is what the ancients called it. So yes, these are toolkit items. I call them, you know, aspects of the tenacity toolkit mm -hmm. in my coaching that I customize for my clients and allow them to practice and get back with me. How's that working? Okay. We can modify it a little bit this way. Cause I just, I know so many different tools and then we offer them pairings of mantras. Cause we have, we have 70,000 to 90,000 thoughts every day mm. and 95% of them are the same exact thoughts as we had the day before yeah. and 80% are negative. And so when we can begin to utilize meditation, using the breath to watch what it is that we're saying, this idea of metacognition, thinking about our thinking. Meta means the study of, it's self-referential. So metacognition is thinking about what we're thinking about and begin to watch. It's kind of that idea of mindfulness, but personally, mindfulness never worked for me. Mm -hmm. Instead, if I give myself a breath work or a mantra, to kind of roll around between my ears or mm. utilizing my breath, that light focus allows my brain to just kind of keep on going mm. and things tend to settle down Okay. somehow. 
Okay. So it doesn't work for everyone. Some people are able to just sit and kind of let the thoughts settle down. For me, I'm so analytical. I prefer some sort of a device, some, some sort of a tool. How about you? Do you meditate? No, no, actually, actually, I've, uh, I've actually never tried it. Um, and which sounds insane in this world that we live in and with my, from my podcast and the way I carry myself, you would think that I, I do meditate, but I've actually never actively tried it. I think I've tried, um, watered down versions of it where it's just stopping and breathing and, and capturing my thoughts and thinking about things like that but i don't know if that's effective i mean i feel i feel clairvoyant after the fact but actually Mm. meditating or following a meditation plan i've never tried it and that's something that makes me so curious because um, right now when you said mantra so mantra the the universal definition of mantra is it kind of not the same as what you're saying because the way you're saying mantra is it like something you're repeating in your head is it like a thought process that you have reoccurring when you're meditating? Is that what you're referring to with mantra? Yes, all of the above. So we use mantras. You can call them affirmations. You can call them yep. declarations. We use them all the time. We repeat things to ourselves that we learned in childhood mm-hmm. or as adolescents. You're never going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. or uh, for for girls, there might be a mantra that we say like to ourselves about our place in the world. Like I, mm. I need to not ask for what I. Maybe we're not saying that directly, but there's there's something in the back of our heads that we're that we're basically saying to ourselves about our abilities or about our place in the world or what we're what's permissible, what what we're allowed to do, how yeah. we're allowed to show up. And so by sitting with the body and noticing where the emotions lie, because this is the work that I do with my clients, is we go inside the tissues and try to strip away what the story is telling us about this situation in front of us and just think about the situation itself and be with the raw sensation in the body Mm -hmm. and breathe into that and allow it to be instead of trying to understand it and dissect it, but instead just like see, okay, this is where this exists in my body. It kind of has like a red texture Mm -hmm. or it feels like a pounding or this feels like a weight or maybe this, it it exists outside of my body. I'm feeling like my heart is not inside of me. My heart is, is outside. It's a reaching. So we go into like, what is the raw sensation? And some of my clients talk about what it, feels like some of them just mm-hmm. allow me to lead them through it. Mm-hmm. And so we leverage what we know about the brain and the body in order to move through it in a really systematic way. So it just depends on what a client might come with. I have a power technique that's for strengthening relationships and the, every letter in the word power stands for something and i lead them through a meditation where they kind of go back to an old um or week week old two week old most recent situation where they maybe didn't act in their integrity they Mm -hmm. they stepped outside of what their values might be and so i allow them to go back into that moment and then we 
see ourselves kind of rising up above the situation and, and pause right before that moment where we didn't act in our integrity. And can you see yourself in your body from outside of your body oxygenating, mm -hmm. intentionally breathing? And what is the outcome that you would prefer to have occurred in this situation? And watch that happening. So we mm -hmm. anchor in this experience of choosing and not yep. reacting and going with what the body and brain are habituated mm -hmm. to do, which is defend ourselves yep. and get into that defense mode. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps that turns into an attack mode by being defensive, by protecting yep. ourselves. It, it's seen mm -hmm. as an attack, getting onto that kind of drama triangle yep. scenario. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I... I just, I work with clients wherever they are and lead them through these various practices that I have that can be really expansive if they're applied regularly. Yeah. So, so the thing I'm getting, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're, we're so obsessed with uh, trying to control everything, right? In this, mm -hmm. in this world and in, in our relationships, interpersonal, every, every kind of relationship, uh, you know, friendship, romantic, whatever. Do you feel like there's, control and relinquishing control there, there is you take control by acknowledging the things that you cannot control and not trying to control those and just kind of because like recently i had an interaction um that i regretted not going mm -hmm. the way that i wish it would have with a mm -hmm. person close to me and i talked to one of my friends and i was so i was so i was beating myself over it so much and he finally mm -hmm. told me he's like yo that's not that still what happened didn't merit the reaction. You can't put that all on yourself because you just, you don't deserve that. And him saying those two little lines, it gave me mm. so much relief. And, and he's a counselor too, but he wasn't, I wasn't like on his uh, couch, so to say, we were just having a basic conversation, right? He's a close friend of mine, but him just saying, yo, stop beating yourself up over that. You know, you did A and B, but still that shouldn't warrant C happening. And just him saying that, giving me that bit of, of affirmation, it, it took a lot of weight off of my chest immediately. So that's something that, um, from your perspective, is that something that do you see there is control and relinquishing control, like not trying to change the past. It's our, it is what it is, not trying to obsess over it and, you know, relinquishing that control over it. Yes. I want to make sure I cover several things. I'm writing a quick note. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You know, I, I follow Andrew Huberman, Dr. Andrew Huberman, the Huberman lab. Oh, yeah, same. same. Yeah. And yeah. He, he mentioned in a recent podcast, it wasn't about this directly, but um, this idea that when we feel uh, guilt, this is assigning ourselves more power than we actually have. That's what they put mm. in the lab is that when we express guilt, we're thinking that something that we could have done would have yeah. changed the situation. Yep. And we don't know. And so what happens a lot of times in these, you know, post-traumatic moment scenarios is we continue to replay in our head, especially with a breakup or with some sort of a situation that like we lost it we didn't act in our integrity and we wish that we would have paused and 
and breathed intentionally and thought about how can I empower this relationship instead of mm-hmm. um, harm it. And so, yeah, this this concept of ahimsa is something that we take from yoga. Ahimsa is nonviolence. And so nonviolent communication is born out of this so that we step out of this accuser role. You did this. You made me feel. And instead speak in nonviolent terms and talk about, I feel this. It makes me feel when X, Y, Z and stepping off that drama triangle and not blaming because when we point a finger, (laughs) we have three fingers pointing back at us. So the idea is not that we're necessarily wrong, but if you've got the gumption to point a finger, maybe you should look at what you're doing because Mm -hmm. we can't control that other person. All we can control are our thoughts and our actions. Mm-hmm. So I remember reading um, Thich Nhat Hanh, one of my favorite Buddhist teachers, okay. talking about how he was walking down the street one day and a young child, a young kid, teenager, came up behind him and like bopped him on the head mm-hmm. and that he immediately had compassion for this young man mm-hmm. and saw where he was suffering. And this to me is that epitome of of where I want to be every single day. Sometimes I'm not in a place where I can be that forgiving and welcoming because maybe mm-hmm. I'm not well resourced in that moment, but I try to be in a place where I can immediately find where other people are suffering and have compassion mm-hmm. on them, not mm-hmm. sympathy, not pity but just compassion that I am not going to step out of my integrity just because you have. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's so well said because obviously the natural reaction of a person would be like, what, what, what did I do to deserve that? What would happen? Like, what are you doing? Or I mean, reacted violently, like going to hit them back and inquiring questions later about why a certain situation happened. That's, that's very interesting from, from looking at that and also not sympathy, but rather compassion. That, that that is so well said because that's something I, I suffer with a lot. Um, I don't know if it's uh, guilt or something, but like when if I go, if I have the privilege of uh, traveling every now and then, and when I travel, uh, I have this problem where I feel sympathetic towards other people, and and I shouldn't. I, I should just enjoy my life, and you know, and and not they don't need my pity, right? Like if I'm traveling somewhere and there's a service worker working there. Uh, it's hard for me to kind of like enjoy myself and just get in travel mode. But like, that's not right either. They don't require my pity. They're, they're living their life. And, you know, why should I be on some tops, you know, where I, I, I look down on them and pity them? That's not right either. But compassion, that's such a that's such a much uh, more beautiful understanding of, you know, the feeling you want to kind of invoke in people. Yeah, and this idea that like everyone is suffering in some way and how can we remain in our authenticity and also allow this person in front of us to be whoever they want to be without it triggering in us something that is undesirable, right? Yeah, it's It's like constant journey. And I have stepped out of my integrity way more times than I would care to admit, right? 
but that that is so funny that is so well said though stepping out of my integrity <laughs> I, I like that i like that i, I like i like the way you put that I well like and it. so that's somewhere that i begin with all of my coaching clients i start with who are we mm-hmm. I, I had this essay question in college it was actually mm-hmm. i was taking a standardized test to become an attorney i didn't become an attorney but mm-hmm. uh, the writing section of that particular standardized test asked this question that has stuck with me for decades mm-hmm. it was do people change or do they stay the same mm-hmm. i don't know what score i got I probably didn't do a very good job because I sat and thought about it for a long time. And I also answered both and. People change and people are the same. We have this core of who we are, who we were, yes, raised to be, but also the things that we learned empirically by living day by day, by having interactions with coaches and family members and peers, ways that we learned to be because I have siblings and we were raised with the same values, but we have different morals in some cases. Mm-hmm. What, what we think is permissible, acceptable, right in this world. Mm-hmm. And that is drawn by not the nurture of our, not the nature of our parents, but the nurture of our parents and the, and the world around us. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this um, idea of, I get to choose who yeah. I'm gonna be and our habits create our reality because the things that when i'm sure you know thoughts become things things done repeatedly become habits habits make your character so if you want to be a welder you need to be welding every day and if you want to be a happy grateful person then you should focus on what you have and focus on gratitude every day and so it's Mm -hmm. like that working backwards of like yes this is who i am and this is who i want to become so how do we work backwards and put the habits in place Mm -hmm. that are going to lead to that ultimate outcome of me being this person based off these core beliefs yeah like going back to stepping out of my integrity that's something that i'm definitely going to use next time someone tries to trigger me online or something i'm I'm not gonna step out of my integrity for you (laughs) that's something that i'm definitely gonna incorporate into my vernacular but i was speaking into when you meet a client like is there a process you go through and that's something that i really have enjoyed um so far through my podcast journey um the people that i've spoken to it's something that's very refreshing because oftentimes people think about people who offer services such as coaching or healing or all you know any of these things guidance they feel like it's it's they feel like there's a bit of dissociation with it, that it's a one glove, one glove fits all kind of situation. I think most people have that kind of mistrust when it comes to hiring these kind of professions. And it's been refreshing. Um, everyone I talk to has an emphasis of being specific to each client, not just mm-hmm. having like a template for all of their clients, whether it be design, uh, coaching, uh, somatic healing, holistic healing. It's always the emphasis of each client being different and having particular needs. It's not like, okay, copy and paste um, my guideline for you to follow and send it to all my clients and I'm done here. Give me your money. That's something that's very refreshing um, that I've, that I've, so far in my journey that I've, everybody I've met. So like, what's your process for when you meet a client and trying to specify exactly what they need to be the person that they want to, that they can become to find that resilience that is inside there. 
Mm, beautiful question. Yeah, I mean, every time I meet with a potential client, mm-hmm. there's a decision on my part too, whether or not yeah. they are in a place to receive the kind of teaching that I mm. forth. And sometimes that's by mutual agreement. Sometimes I really want to serve somebody, but they are not ready to step into their own healing and they are afraid about the transformation. It's been proven that we would rather stay stuck. It's this idea of homeostasis. We would rather stay in this uncomfortable situation because I know what to expect. I mean, the saying is the devil you know versus the devil versus the devil you don't, right? I know how it is to suffer in this way in my life. And I, and I do want this, but I don't want, I don't know how I'm going to feel. I don't know how uncomfortable it's going to feel on the way there. And so I'd rather just say no, like that's not for me and not risk change because people say change is hard, but we change every single day. It's just that it's more imperceptible and Sometimes people take on, and I and I think I I used to see personal trainers in the gym. You know, it's January fifth, and there's this person who's got a New Year's resolution, and this personal trainer is all fit, and they are killing this, not killing, but you know, they are really taxing their body that has not worked out in years, and that's not how you keep a client. They're yeah. going to go home. Mm-hmm. Whether they work out once that week or three times that week, they're going to be miserable the next day. It's got to be incremental changes. And instead of throwing everything out and trying to, because we have this muscle memory, we have habits that are automatic that our brain uses to make things easier so that we don't have to decide every single time if this is what we really want to do. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, it's always a decision as to whether or not someone is far enough along. It's like one of my coaches used an analogy that I continue to repeat. It's like if you're trying to put sealant, you know, caulking on a window, you probably shouldn't do it while it's raining. Uh, Not going to stick. So they have to be in a place where they're ready to receive. And so the pre-interview, that resilience roadmap call, I might just give them a lot of resources that they can go find on their own. Or I might say, I really think you're at a place where the things that I offer can benefit you. And I'd love Mm -hmm. to tell you what coaching with me would look like. Mm -hmm. And there are people who I'm not even finished with the program, like telling them and they're like, I want it let's do it. Like I'm so in. (laughs) Yeah. So it just, it just depends on whether or not they're really ready to like step into that new upgraded version of themselves. That's, that's very, that's a very well, well way to put it because I mean, like I said, it's something that it's been refreshing. It's been refreshing because um, I personally uh, have never hired like a mentor or a dating coach or these things. So it's like, I have no experience with it. So that's something that to me, it's refreshing to see. It's refreshing to see that the people that I've met uh, take each client very seriously, obviously, mm-hmm. and everything is interwoven into that specific client and specific needs and where that person wants to be, whether it be financially, uh, dating life, even uh, website design. I spoke to a brand designer 
Um, yeah. It's not just one glove fits all. And and we as humans, I think we, we see that a lot with things. It's a lot of stuff from, from my perspective, being a male, a heterosexual male, a lot of stuff that I see, it's uh, stop crying, stop complaining, get over it, mm-hmm. up, man up. Obviously, also um, the way I was raised, raised was very, um, that, that's the kind of notion that we, we get. And I think it's very healing to address these things and not mm-hmm. make them taboo anymore. That's something that hopefully is changing. Um, I do see a lot. I do see a lot of influence on social media as far as the toxic, you know, masculinity, the alpha male things. But mm-hmm. hopefully, there. Hopefully, it goes back the other way in the coming the years. Divine masculine. Yeah. yeah. Embracing yeah. that divine masculine. Yes. Yeah. It, 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 it does something that. Do you encounter that with your clients as far as, I mean, obviously they, you have to, you know, deconstruct social stigmas and social constructs when it comes to each client. But is that something that you specifically relate to them as far as like, whether it be upbringing or how do you kind of break that down with each client when it comes to like, okay, um, I was raised this way. I was raised to like, for example, um, I had a partner, um, she was a female and she was always raised not to be to to be soft spoken mm. it, it's always such a contradiction because we want women to be like we expect them to catch our eye to you know visually be loud but as far as vocally be soft spoken and not create too much attention but as far as physically and, and 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 visually yeah by all means get my attention but don't talk too much like be soft spoken which is something that to me was always so I don't know. I, I didn't understand that, but is, is that something that with um with your clients, whether it be women or male, um, is that something that you take time to kind of deconstruct? You know, the social constructs they're kind of raised in, and see how that affects their upbringing. Yes, and I think it is so closely tied with that people pleasing aspect. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I believe, and I'm writing a book called "Queer Hearts Break Harder." I believe that when there are two women in a relationship, that tendency to people please, to say yes when we mean no, Mm -hmm. to say no when we mean yes, Mm -hmm. to not ask for what we need, is doubled. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, my ex-wife and I, we would end up at a restaurant and be like, I thought you wanted to go here. I thought you wanted to go here. When like one of us really wanted either, you know, we, we wanted to stay home. Yeah. But we're trying to understand what the other person wants and then reacting off of that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden yeah. we end up doing something that neither of us actually want. Well, you take that microcosm of a situation and extrapolate it to how many times that's possible to happen within a particular relationship when there's two women mm-hmm. involved and no one is acting in their integrity. Yeah. No one is being authentic. Mm-hmm. And how can we build a truly authentic relationship founded on who we really are and how we really want to show up in the world if we're too afraid mm-hmm. to be who we are and to say what we need kindly and lovingly? Yeah. yeah. You know, and this is not about boundaries necessarily because boundaries really doesn't have anything to do with what I'll allow you to do to me, but my boundaries have to do with what I am going to do in response mm-hmm. to like, you know, if you're going to try to get in touch with me at work, I'm not going to be able to respond. 
we'll get back to you after you know so you don't say don't text me at work and expect me to you know instead it's not an instruction it's just this is what i'm available for and Mm -hmm. this is me looking out for myself first because we have to you know you cannot pour from an empty cup we have to make sure that we are safe and sane yep. before we take care of others it's like i have a seven-year-old and ever since i was very little they come by and they say make sure you put on your mask first before you mm. assist anyone else because if we pass out yeah they're gone too yeah right so mm-hmm. yeah that's the uh well that's, the that's so funny Thirty thousand foot view <laughs> go ahead yeah the thirty thousand foot, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. So that's something that that you saying that it just brought back a core memory. Um, I had a partner at the time a couple years ago, and we got into the dumbest argument because um, I wanted to take her out to get her something to eat, and she wanted peanut butter at home, mm-hmm. and and I thought that she was like, I I didn't, I guess I was wrong because I didn't believe that's what she wanted. Like, but that's all she wanted. She just wanted, and I was like, as a guy, I have to take you out. As a guy, I have to treat you. I have to, you know, take you somewhere to eat. I mean, it's like, I'm a guy. I have to do these things. And she just wanted peanut butter at home. And she just wanted to watch a show and be cozy and just, you know, in pajamas and just eat peanut butter. And I was over here, like, I was, I'm going to take you out. And it became a dumb argument. And, and I, I didn't take her out. We went home. And she had her peanut butter. And after a while, we just realized this, this is stupid. This is dumb. Why are we even Why are we even mad with each other or something stupid? Because I was under the, the influence that as a guy, I should take you out. I, you know, I don't want to just have you at home. You know, I should take you out. I should treat you to something. I want to buy you something. But she was happy being at home. And because society teaches women or, or guys not to say what we really want, not to be vocal about what we need, I thought that she was just... Um, saying no so that I would continue persisting. So it, it ended up being a paradox because the more she said no, the more I persisted. So it, it was it was a dumb argument and it could have been easily avoided and we could have both just been at home and in our pajamas eating peanut butter. Watching <laughs> right? Which is, which is better than going out. It's more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, so much of the way that we were raised... You know, if you were taught at home that when you're celebrating, it sounds like you were trying to celebrate an accomplishment of hers. Not really. I mean, it's because it, it because because it was also long distance. So she was in town. She was in town for like two weeks. And I was over here like, let me take you out. Let me let me just have a, a day out, a night out. And she's over here like. Also, because it's long distance, I would rather just be cozy, comfortable with you and just watch. I met your mother or something, some some random show. Right. So we, we, she was right in hindsight. That's much better than going out and, and, you know, whatever. But I was, I was downtrodden about, I'm going to take you out because it's like, long mm. get to go out every single weekend. So it's something that that's also what influenced it, I believe. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's this idea that when we're courting somebody, dating somebody, you know, we get all dressed up and we're putting on this persona. And so mm-hmm. maybe she really just wanted to, and I have no idea, but maybe she really just wanted to be authentic and be casual and allow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so and, and everybody's different, but mm-hmm. that's really beautiful that you were able to get to that space without any coaching and, and finally <laughs> yeah. arrive at that as a couple. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. It, 
it's it's something that it was really dumb. It was really dumb, but we were both like I, more more so me. I was the one that was because of social constructs. I, I should take you out. I mm-hmm. have to take you out. Like, how am I just gonna have you at home eating peanut butter and pajamas? Like, I feel like I feel like such a sleaze back for doing that. Like, as a guy, I have to take you out. I have to treat you. I have to do these things. You know, buy sushi and all these things. So. It was more of, you know, these social things that we were raised in certain ways that I guess we see ourselves that we feel we have to respond to certain situations with this kind mm-hmm. of, you know, notion that if we don't do A and B, then we're going to be seen as, you know, a certain way. So that's mm-hmm. something that I think that's kind of what played into it, looking back at it in hindsight. And it, it was just a dumb thing that should have been avoided. That could have been easily avoided. Well, you're very perceptive. Yeah, I, I try to be. I try to be. That's the whole point of the of the podcast to be perspective, perceptive about these things. But something that that I, I want to talk to you about your content. So, um, growing up the way that we grew up, you know, our generations. You know, I don't know if we're the same age range, but we're definitely not this generation. How do you find it adapting to this fast pace? You know, content because your content it's it's very it's very catchy. It gets your attention. It gets the information across and goodbye. For more information, visit link. For more information, follow me. For more information, contact me. So how do you feel adapting to that content? Because I, I think it's safe to say that we're both from a generation where we were more, I mean, given our conversation right now, our conversation has become very, you know, it's very, it's a very, it's very expounding, right? We're expounding on ideas and talking about them. We're not just getting like little clickbait titles and going on to the next thing so how do you feel making your content which by all means i think it's very effective it gets your attention it gets you the information and if you want more information contact me you know holla at me so how do you feel adapting to that to this new wave of content where everything is bite-sized you know pocket-sized to use your your coin term I feel like, I guess it's just, it's, it's interesting that you would have that assessment. I, I don't feel like there's been a big change, but maybe there has. And, and maybe that's just been a natural outgrowth. I have put out a lot of reels, spent a lot of time editing reels and adding in. And so I guess lately I've just not had the bandwidth to create a lot of reels content like that. It is very time consuming. Mm-hmm. We're, can be the the methodologies that I was leveraging were very time intensive. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have tried to schedule posts and just spend like an hour on social media scheduling mm-hmm. a bunch of posts out for the week. That mm-hmm. seems to really free up my time. Otherwise, that way I'm not every single day having to go on and figure mm-hmm. out what I'm going to say and which picture I'm going to use or you know, then I, I've just blocked my time. That time blocking is something I, I feel like I've really kind of gotten there in the last quarter or so. Mm-hmm. And that has really changed the way that I just go through my life, mm-hmm. just being able mm-hmm. to dedicate blocks of time instead of constantly mm-hmm. being checking email all, all day long. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's just more intention behind how I spend my time, how I set my schedule. So, so when you went on growth of that, <laughs> Sorry yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah, I got you. So the term, you know, self-growth healing, I think it's become so saturated because we see it a lot. 
and it's become mm-hmm. something that people it's just for a lot of people it doesn't hold the weight that it should but like what was how did you begin your healing journey overcoming you know your past traumas like did you contact a healing coach did you do reading like how did you begin that journey like what make what is your road to Damascus moment where you realize wait I should do a and b I need to do this I need to do that I mean obviously there's no there's no like I don't know or was there was there a a moment where it's just like okay this is a moment of clarity I need to do this I should do this to get to where I want to be or how did you begin your healing journey from your past traumas if you would mind speaking on that you know, I think it is such a journey. We we muddle through and are trying on this thing and that thing. And so trigger warning for any of your guests, but I'm going to talk about some sexual trauma. So just a trigger warning if anybody needs to... Uh, get children out of the room or otherwise, you know, take care of themselves and be in a resource state to hear. When I was 28 years old, I was by eight men Mm -hmm. and propped up outside of the hotel room where I was staying. I'm really grateful that I, that they, that they had that decency. Um, they drugged me and I had trace memories of what had happened. Um, and I was, you know, kind of beat up and, you know, a woman knows when she's been intimate and this was violent and I did not deal with it. I shoved it down. I didn't look at it. I did the three D's deny, distract, associate. Yeah. I drank. Because drinking is very socially acceptable. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to look at it. I didn't know how to look at it. I didn't go to the police. I told my sister what had happened. She yeah. encouraged me to go to the police. I did not. And it wasn't until six years later that I got pregnant with my now seven year old. I started not having the i mean i wasn't able to drink you know because i was pregnant and i did not drink the entire time i was pregnant um intentionally and it was hard to not look at it i was a meditator i got a meditation coach when she was about five months old i was already a meditator but i had a regular mantra meditation practice using a mantra inside my head 20 minutes twice a day yep and that introspection i had to start looking at it and what had happened and what I was denying. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment when my daughter was about a year and a half. So after she came out and I was able to drink again, I, I drank. Wine was my drink of choice. And we were at a party and she picked up this tiny little like toy chalice. I'm actually from New Orleans. It very much looked like a Mardi Gras cup, like what the Kings would have. And in her little baby voice, she sipped it and said, this my wine. And it was like somebody punched me in the stomach. Wow. Yeah. I'm like, what is my baby girl learning to do at 18 months old? Wow. Because of me. 
because of what I'm doing. And so I started changing my relationship with alcohol. And, um, you know, the person I was married to, her dad did not like that. Yeah. And I realized that without the wet blanket of alcohol, I couldn't be intimate with him. Mm. And so I got sober and came out of the closet and got a divorce and that rolls off the tongue very easily, but it was messy yeah. and <laughs> it was not, um, you know, it was not eloquent, but it was necessary. Mm-hmm. And I am so glad that I get to live as my authentic self without the crutch mm-hmm. of alcohol that just numbs and doesn't allow us to truly feel into who we are. it's 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 a very alcohol is a very effective antiseptic it's what they used to use before general anesthesia to do Mm -hmm. surgery and you know it it literally numbs pain so yes i did have a a pivotal moment where i really was like i've got to get a handle on this and i'm now four years off the bottle five years out of the closet and my life gets better every single day because of it. Yeah. That's awesome. And a couple of notes there. It's so interesting that you said wine because wine is something that if we see a person drinking wine, we don't judge them as we see a person drinking hard liquor. Wine is seen Mm. as more socially acceptable. Wine is seen like more fancy, if anything. So that's that's very interesting that you said that because a lot of people that I know they're alcoholics but they're not you know they're dealing with you know heavy liquors hard liquors vodkas tequilas but wine being a choice and I think wine also because of that same thing it, it maybe helped you or it didn't enable you to notice that problem earlier because wine is seen as you know it's sociable wine is seen as elegant if anything it's something that classy they, like yeah it's classy, classy. Get drunk <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's classy it's like you know it's like wine is like oh that's not a problem i'm just i'm just a social wine drinker right mm. that's that, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that but that's something that's uh that's something that I, obviously i can't begin to imagine having to deal with that and, and overcome that and then to to, to do the work because I think it's so easy to you know go into apathy and not do the work that it takes to heal yourself and recover from this trauma which is it's something that I think the point that you said is something that our society during the Me Too movement maybe they come to understand it not as much as we should maybe we're going to understand it more in the future as far as why people do not come out because that's the first thing you see when people come out uh, so many years later, um, you know, victims come out with their story. It's always, why didn't she do it sooner? Mm-hmm. Why didn't she go to the cops? Why did she do that? I don't believe her. She's a liar. She wants money. She wants us and that. And it's something that with every, you know, great purpose that we see, there's always going to be a negative, you know, attached to it. There's always going to be stigma attached to it or people reacting in a negative way. So that's something with the MeToo movement that I saw that a lot of people were given, were given a voice to tell their story. But also, a lot of people became very judgmental of them. Um, women and, and, and men, obviously, men were very, you know, women bashing is very, it's a very popular thing on social media. But it's always the same thing. It's always, why didn't she do it sooner? Why didn't she come forward sooner? And it's like, because they don't understand that when you come forward, you, you're putting yourself out there as a victim again, and you're victimizing yourself all over again. Like, there's plenty of stories in, in court cases where uh, the, the 
the um the criminal the one who committed the act you know wants to victimize the person again by seeing them in court by making them testify by making them tell their story you know and and that's that's the victim is being victimized all over again there, there's there's actually a good series on on netflix i don't know if you ever heard of it i think it's, really, it's called unbelievable and it's shown it's a it's a teenage girl who was um assaulted and it shows how first she had to tell her story to the cop that arrived on the scene told him the story and then told the story to her foster mom and then the detective came told him the story she had to tell the story like six times within the matter of two days and it's she's like wait i already told detective phone so do i have to tell you the story too and it's like yeah you got to tell me the story too and most of these people were men and it's just every time sharing the story like oh was there any um was there any um a word penetration right and she's like yeah you know and like, she had to tell this to like five different mm-hmm. she has to recount the story and it's something that people do not want to go through this it's a re-traumatization is what you're yeah. saying yeah yeah because yeah, every time you tell the story it's like it doesn't get easier right, right. it's something that, that you know so that's it, interesting yeah. be- mm-hmm. because there's a book that i read by desmond tutu he's the archbishop of um south africa mm-hmm. i believe desmond tutu anyway and his daughter Mpo tutu mm-hmm. wrote this book called the book of forgiveness mm-hmm. and I read it because I knew that there were situations in my life where I needed to forgive because it's, if you think about the analogy of, um, well, they say this, this maxim of, let me find it. It is Mm -hmm. anger is like daily drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Uh, Okay. Yeah. (laughs) we are the only ones who are subject to our body chemistry Mm -hmm. and it can be easily visualized if you think about you're in traffic in a car and somebody pulls out in front of you cuts you off you're in these containers they can't see you maybe maybe you can gesture or scream to the point where they know that you're upset but it might be a little old lady with no hearing or no peripheral yep. vision. It yep. might be somebody on the way to to meet their very first baby. It might be somebody who's, you know, in a state and they really didn't do it on purpose. It might be somebody that was, as you think, not you, but you know, this proverbial, the person who just got off, yeah. got cut off. They think that this was a malicious act, mm-hmm. but by us getting if if we're the one who just got cut off by us getting angry and allowing our body chemistry to mm-hmm. produce a cocktail of hormones adrenaline cortisol all these stress hormones mm-hmm. that get us into this worked up state this fight or flight state where we're very defensive the other person has gone on their way and we are the ones stuck with these emotions so mm-hmm. i have done very intentional forgiveness work around this incident because mm-hmm. holding on to those those men aren't holding on to it yeah i was the one who 14 years later wasn't dealing with it mm-hmm. and it was time to let it go wow and so yeah i, I i'm with you that um this is big work and it's yeah. very intentional 
and it takes a big person mm -hmm. to sign up for it and to admit yep. i'm gonna do what i can i'm gonna control what i can and i'm gonna feed the wolf yes. that i want to have sustained in my life this choice between good and evil i love that and the job's not finished it's, it's an everyday process that's right <laughs> yes, yes. Every day. That's awesome. We're at an hour, passing an hour now. And Sarah, I really want to thank you for being on my show. And you are like the people that I interviewed before you, they're disruptors. And you are also a disruptor. Mm -hmm. And I, I love how you're disrupting the status quo when it comes to women being soft spoken and staying in your place. It's a beautiful thing to see. And I encourage it. And I'm honored and privileged to have shared this time and this space with you and hearing some of your story. Thank you so much for holding such a beautiful space and for inviting me into it and standing in your integrity, in your divine masculinity. Like Thank you I like so much that. for this. I really appreciate it. I, I've had a fantastic time getting to know you. Thank you. We'll talk soon.